Guy Adami here. Welcome back to On The Tape with Dan Nathan, Danny Moses. Today we're going to be talking about the big moves in big tech, how the market structure is changing under our feet. There's a tectonic shift going on out there, people. I hope you feel it. I know Danny Moses does. And a lot of smoke coming out of the cannabis industry. Later, we're going to be going off the tape in an interview with Danny's former partners from the big short, Vincent Daniel and Porter Collins. Now, before we get into this, guys, I mean, Vincent Daniel, I mean, two first names, Porter Collins, two last names. And what's the deal? Danny Moses, what's the deal with these two cats? I mean, can they just sort of amalgam together and switch this up? It should be, in my opinion, Vincent Collins and Daniel Porter. I mean, that works. The other thing doesn't, Danny. I'm with you. You're going to hear from them directly, so you can ask them. I'm sure they'll be happy to answer. I'm going to. I'm going to break their coyotes, as they say, because I think one of them's a Met fan. And then I'm just going to say something, Dan Nathan, and don't please don't at me on Twitter, and I don't need the OK Boomer things. You ready? I'm just going to say something, and then we're going to come back to this. I got a 69 Chevy with the 396 Fuley heads and a Hurst on the floor. Just remember that I said that, folks, because that's going to come up in a conversation we're having. Obviously, jobs numbers are out, but Danny Moses, big thing, the big news is Apple getting into cars and Amazon, Jeff Bezos stepping down. I know you have some views on all of this. Well, let me first comment on Amazon. I think that Jassy, who was running Amazon Web Services, we always knew that was the driver, going to be the driver in the future. So it's not shocking if you said someone was going to take over the company, who would it be? It was him. But I think more importantly, I think Amazon's going to move away and move towards um, being more of a platform like an Alibaba and away from a retailer. And I think that you're going to see that over time, too. So that's my take there. I know Dan had some thoughts on Apple, and I can comment after Dan does as well. Yeah, so it's really interesting. The Amazon news, if you had told me or asked me a month ago if Jeff Bezos resigned in a fairly sudden fashion, giving, let's say, you know, one to two quarter lead time, what would you think the stock would do? I would have told you it'd be down 10%. And so the fact that the stock was basically unchanged, it happened on an earnings announcement where the company just kind of blew the doors off. Obviously, things are firing on all cylinders. They won the pandemic. They created a vaccinated supply supply chain for America. And then the AWS was the backbone of so much of the work from home and, you know, school, remote school, all that sort of stuff. So it worked out really well for him. I think the timing to drop the mic for Jeff Bezos, not so bad for all intents and purposes. The Apple news really interesting to me. This is like guy you mentioned, rumored for a very long time. People weren't sure exactly what they would do with a car. Not too different about all the rumors about what Apple was going to do with TV. The irony there was that the only innovation they ever made on TV was a little black box that attaches to a TV. This is going to be really different. When you think of the Apple ecosystem, you think of the attention economy that we live in, you think of smartphone saturation and the addressable market for high-end smartphones. It's just there's nothing left to do, right? Which is why this services and ecosystems is a huge part of the story going forward. The car seems like a logical next step. Not an EV car. They're not talking about doing something to compete with GM and Ford and Tesla right now, they're talking about creating a product where people can sit in there, do nothing, and just scroll on their phones or their iPads. So to me, massive opportunity here. I like the idea that they're targeting B2C business to consumer first, and they're doing it with probably what what is probably a very good, efficient manufacturer in Kia. And they don't have to be first here. They just have to do it better. And that's what Apple's history is. It's just doing things better and capturing more profitability doing it. So if you're an Apple bull and you're worried about 
what comes next and then the slowing growth of services relying on the backs of, of an expanding installed base for devices, um, whether it be iPhones or iPads. This is a great next leg to the story. I don't think you buy the stock here for it, but that's my take. Yeah. So you heard me mention racing in the streets for you, Bruce Springsteen aficionados out there. And I will tell you the darkness on the edge of town. Just my opinion. Please don't at me for this. I think Darkness is one of the top five albums of all time. Full stop. Full effing stop, folks. Just go. But Bruce Springsteen wrote at least eight or nine songs about muscle cars. Danny Moses, is he writing a a song about the Apple autonomous car where you can just sit there and play on your whatever phone in the dashboard? The answer is no. Where have we come as a society where that's the new big thing? We can just sit in a car and do nothing. I want to have the steering wheel on my hand. I want to be shifting gears. I mean, I mean, is it is that a bygone era, Danny Moses? That's more your time than mine, obviously. But I do like the old-fashioned cars. I do. I think gas cars will always be there, obviously. And I think if Apple can make it that much more entertaining, why why wouldn't they? And I, I think the Apple multiple is not so expensive. It's always traded pretty cheap, actually, on a multiple basis. This isn't something where you're shifting your business to a point where it will change the dynamic and how investors look at it. So to Dan's point... I think it's a it's an interesting risk reward, and I'm sure they'll get it right over time. And it's a marketing company, right? That's what it's always been—a brilliant marketing company. Yeah, listen, they do things better than everybody else, clearly. And and I am not their target audience. I understand that. And maybe you know, maybe they are making this shift. I mean, they obviously made the shift from hardware to services, and that's why their multiple has gone up. We understand this, and this is going to be part of that equation, no question. And I guess my question to both you guys and Dan Nathan, I'll start first: Is Amazon? Are we seeing a shift in Amazon? Is the Jeff Bezos stepping down, to Dan's point, maybe at the best time ever? I mean, are we seeing them shifting from one business model to another? I don't necessarily know the answer to that. I'll tell you, the stock jockey in me says, hmm, you know, we traded up to that 3,500 level that we saw, I think, back in June or so, and we seemingly have failed. So maybe the market's telling a story. But Dan, was this the right move at the right time, in your opinion, for Amazon? Yeah, no doubt about it. I mean, listen, you know, we have this 10 years ago when Steve Jobs was ill in kind of the transition to Tim Cook. There was a lot of naysayers about Tim Cook um, at the time. If you think about what's happened to their annual revenues, this company just put up a $100 billion revenue quarter. Ironically, so did Amazon. And this is for the first time, Amazon just put up a $100 billion story. Now, the profitability is very different for these companies. So I just think that we have a playbook here. I think Jassy is clearly the guy. I think people are going to be very comfortable with it. You talked about that 3550 level from September 2nd. In Amazon, the stock's actually not made a new high since then. It's the only major tech stock that has not made a new high. We know the MAGA complex, Microsoft, Apple, Google, and Amazon make up $7.5 trillion in market cap, the four largest companies in the U.S. Amazon's the only one that has not made a new high. So maybe there were some investors who thought this was coming. Maybe some people are going to be a bit cautious about this transition. I would tell you that given Jeff Bezos, his divorce and the scandal around his mistress and, you know, a whole host of other things, his interest in space, Trump's fixation on him over the last four years, he might have been a bit of a distraction. So this might be the thing that takes Amazon, you know, to the next leg higher if we are really in a new bull market. I suspect Amazon will be one of the leaders. Danny, I know you have thoughts as well. Yeah, well, there's one other thing here that is not being talked about, and it doesn't have anything to do with Bezos stepping down, I don't believe, but Walmart is not even quietly anymore is loudly making a move in e-commerce. And what's really interesting about that is they already had the bricks and mortar that Amazon didn't have, right? So Amazon's out there building these warehouses and so forth around the country, strategically locating so they can do one-hour delivery. Walmart already has that. And Walmart is transforming 
into more of an e-commerce company than it than it has been. And I think people are underappreciating that. And yes, Walmart stock has had a nice move. It's not cheap on an historic basis, but I think it's cheap based upon the fact that people aren't realizing this is happening. And yes, they're not up to maybe they're 20 percent of the e-commerce market at this point around that number. Don't quote me on that. Or as a guy would say, don't at me on that. But it's growing. And Amazon can only go one way. You know, 65, 70 percent, right, of everything we order online has probably come from Amazon. A small shift in that is a big deal in dollars. And again, it's not the reason that Bezos stepped down. But I think as Amazon moves more towards a platform, I think that it becomes a little bit vulnerable in the sense of where you're getting your goods. It doesn't really matter. And I think the Walmart, historically, people wouldn't go into a Walmart maybe because of where it wasn't located or it had some negative connotation to it or the products weren't good or something. I think that's going to change. And I think Walmart's going to do a great job. So I keep an eye on that as well. They've had some changes there in management. Before we get into this sort of this, as I mentioned, the tectonic shift going on, that was that band you like, that Rage Against the Machine? I know you guys, who is that? Tom, Dan, help me out. Is that like Tom Morello or somebody? Is that the yeah, but, Rage Against the Machine? Ne- neither, neither one of us are big Rage fans, but they were very prominently featured at the end of the Matrix movie from 1999, which you probably Which I didn't missed. see. I appreciate yeah. that. Thank you very and, much. And moving but, on. No, but okay, Dan, (laughs) relax for a second. And I want to rage against the machine for a second because what was on the tape this week was a note from Doug Parker, who's the, I think Doug is still the CEO of American Airlines. By the way, it's an $11 billion company. And he basically said, listen, we might have to furlough 13,000 people moving forward. Things haven't moved as quickly as we want. The payroll protection plan is over. Blah, blah, blah. Why do I mention that? Because you know what, Doug? Don't put that note. Who are you speaking to? Are you speaking to your employees? Are you speaking to Washington, D.C. again? Are you looking for a handout? This is my suggestion to Doug Parker. Do a secondary offering. I mean, you can raise money and keep these people in their jobs. You don't have to go with, you know, hat in hand, as they say, to Capitol Hill. So am I a little pissed off about that? Absolutely. Because you know what? You get paid a lot of money to run these companies, and I understand that this was unforeseen, but you spent close to 85% of free cash flow to buy back your stocks, and now the chickens are coming home to roost. Yeah. Are you speaking to an audience of one? And is that audience Congress, that sort of thing? I mean, this company did sell 85 million shares at $13.5 back in June. The stock is much higher than that at $17.30. That was expensive capital. They have a market cap of $10 billion and they have $41 billion in debt, $7 billion in cash. So, you know, the problem for the airlines is, is that they really never come out of this. We're going to see uh, massive consolidation. We probably see some fail the longer this goes goes but that's kind of my take and, and guy way, way to way to tune up the rage i'm, so, I'm sorry i'm you know, no pisses me off i apologize because i think that i understand where the letter it's, i think it's somewhat disingenuous that's just my view and by the way another great a songwriter singer songwriter of the 70s i happen to think that tapestry is another top five album of all time why do i mention that because the song i feel the earth move under my feet danny <laughs> moses and as we speak right now the yeah. earth is moving under the feet of traders, investors, maybe our economy to a certain extent in the form of what's going on with exchanges, payment for order flow. I know you have some thoughts on that, DM. Go. Yes. Well, market structure continues to be an issue. And that goes back for years. That goes back to when the exchanges were nonprofit companies that turned for profit in the early 2000s, right? So once you do that and you have shareholders, things change. That's one. Two. As Michael Lewis wrote about in Flash Boys and called the market rigged and people chastised him for that, I think we would all agree that they feel like there is a rigged component here to certain people that have that have an advantage over others. And I think it's underappreciated 
that the exchanges have been a conduit for all of this to a degree. They were the ones that are opening up the data centers and providing fast access uh, for high-frequency traders and so forth. But at the same time, retail volume has grown in the last several years from 20% of volume in the market to over 35%. And with that, this stuff is not trading on exchanges. It's trading with the market makers. And the institutions, whether they know it or not, can't get access to a lot of this flow. And it creates a lot of volatility in the market when you can't you know, see what a live bid and offer is because it's trading in either in a dark pool or through a market maker, through their own book. So that's a major issue. The option market has moved literally the vast majority of it is trading with these market makers again. So just compounding options with stocks and liquidity, it just creates a kind of a blind pool, so to speak. And it's really hurting transparency. And I think that these hearings, I'm afraid, over the next couple of weeks in the House and the Senate, you'll have people that are talking about it that don't know what they're talking about, either trying to vilify short sellers or vilify retail investors. I think it's really still a market structure issue. And if they can get something done here, I'm not hopeful that they can get something done. I think you'll start to unpack a lot of the inefficiencies in the market. And listen, it's still been going on, right? So it starts again with what are the incentives to make money within the, let's call it exchange food chain or trading food chain. And I think there's a lot of inefficiencies there. So we're going to see a lot of stuff uncovered. I'm not hopeful that we'll fix it. And I'm also concerned that we'll get talk of like a financial transaction tax or things that, you know, and I don't disagree with options trading, maybe people should be a little bit more qualified before they're able to open up an options account. And I'm really looking forward to that Super Bowl ad from Robinhood that's going to be coming on that they made actually in December that we're going to see during the Super Bowl. So I'm angry. It's still frustrating. This has been going on for years. And this is a culmination of what we've seen in the last couple of weeks is a culmination of all of that. So hopeful, but I'm not optimistic. We were also saying that we were trying to figure out who's making money in all of this. And so Dave Cummings, who started BATS years ago, and then left and started a company called TradeBot, which is a HFT company, high frequency trading company. He was t- he was tweeting last week that he had his biggest day ever. So I don't know if you want to promote that or not. But what he does, he doesn't provide liquidity into the market, right? He's a high frequency trader who is living off the volatility and market making and access that he has that some other people don't. Now there's other people that have the same access he has, but you want to put it out there. He hadn't made money, so th- there was a time period a couple of years ago, I think, where he made money for something like. 3,400 straight trading days. I don't know about you guys, but that's riskless trading and that should never exist. So don't tell me that these guys are providing liquidity or service to the market. And talking to Joe and Sal over at Themis Trading, these guys, even before Flash Boys, they were writing books about what's going on in in these dark pools. And and so we still have a long way to go here and the market is inefficient. And I want to say one other thing that I've said this before. There's a psychological impact that drives some of this trading, meaning if I'm a portfolio manager, and by the way, I'm managing, I might be a mutual fund. It could be a hedge fund, but I may be managing a pension fund's money. I may be man- you know, managing a retiree's money. So let's not kid ourselves. Retail isn't just on Robinhood. Retail are investors that are involved in mutual funds and hedge funds through pension funds and state you know, retirement systems. And if there is a psychological impact on a portfolio manager who sees a stock moving, maybe not a GameStop, that's an extreme example, but there's other kind of many flash crashes up and down, and it forces my hand because I can't see the liquidity in a correct manner as a portfolio manager. What I'm buying, I'm buying it higher and I'm selling it lower than I should because I can't predict or see this volatility that is inherently underneath the surface here. And that's a major deal. And that's, you can't say that's a cost because I can't, you can't prove it. But I'm telling you, having been in that seat, I can see the impact. Yeah. And later we're going to off the tape with Vincent Daniel and Porter Collins. I'm sure they'll have some views on this, but I just want to sort of chime in here, if I may, 
Dan talked about options, and I find this to be fascinating. I think the options market in a lot of ways has been gamified too. You look at these sports betting pools and what people are making bets on, the five-team parlays. I mean, is that really any different than some of the derivative markets we've seen? So I think in a lot of ways, people play in the options market the same way they will on Sunday when they make five different bets on five different outcomes. And I think that's really dangerous because people are playing with things that they probably don't know enough about. And why do I say that? Well, I'll tell you exactly why. We saw the volatility index last Friday go from 21 and a half to about 40 in a three-hour period of time on what, in my opinion, was an extraordinarily benign move in the broader market. Now, yes, the Dow Jones was off some 680 points. I get it. But in the broad scope of things, given how far we've climbed over the last year, that's not really a big move. But to see Vol double in a three-hour period, that is telling you something. And I think structurally, there are some things under the surface that the market is not taking into consideration. As we close out this week, we're seeing volatility right back down to that 21.5 level. And I think that speaks to a complacency, number one, and potentially a gamification that's really dangerous. Anyway, that's just my two cents. You mentioned five-team parlays and so forth. A lot of these market makers in the options market can create whatever market they want. And these spreads are very wide. And the retail, to your point, they don't know what they're buying. If the, if the game stops trading at 150 and someone's trying to buy the weekly 200 calls without people that are listening may not know what that means, but $50 out of the money. Yes, volatility does come into play in terms of how you price an option. But these market makers can literally have a spread on there $6 by $9. And do you think that when they're in there buying at, you know, the market? So, yes, the same way the bookies make a spread, normally that's 10%. I think the options market makers are making much more. Anyway. No, but quickly, I'm glad you mentioned that because in the great movie, I can see Dan's eyes rolling. I know you folks don't see it because this is just, as they say, the audio portion. But Dan's eyes are rolling right now. But I will bring you back to the great movie Goodfellas when they talk about vigorish, vigorish. And that's exactly what Danny <laughs> Moses was just talking about, the vigorish. Anyway, Danny, exactly. talk to me about cannabis. Yeah, so it was, it's been a big week. You know, since the Senate runoffs in Georgia, cannabis has gotten another leg up here. But a couple of things. When I started looking at the space, it was the medical aspect of it. I thought it was fascinating. People can get off opioids or for pain medication using cannabis instead. I thought it was brilliant. That's how a lot of states enacted their medical programs to begin with. GW Pharma without going into too much detail here, got approval from the FDA a couple of years ago to use a cannabis-derived drug, CBD, which we all know what it is, to treat epilepsy in children. And the drug worked. So right there, you kind of knew that there was something to this cannabis medical aspect of it. But more importantly than that, they're in trials right now with other type of cannabinoids that are in the plant, call it 150, 160 different cannabinoids. The ones everyone knows are THC and CBD. There's CBN, there's CBG. Anyway, Jazz Pharmaceuticals to spend $7.2 billion, and by the way, the majority of that in cash to buy this, means that not only are they confident that the drug works currently for epilepsy, which it does, but things in the pipeline using for MS, for Alzheimer's, for tumors, and so forth, has to be promising. So that's first. To me, that's a validation. Secondly, Schumer was talking last week about passing through a bill for cannabis legislation, either the MORE Act or the SAFE Act or a version of the two that would allow the following. It would protect banks, traditional banks, if they want to lend into this space. It would protect states' rights to allow the laws that they have in place to, to override federal legislation, kind of like we have with online gambling in there. And it would free, I would change the cost of capital for these companies. And there's small things that no one realizes, like there's something called Section 280E, which it reads as if you're trafficking in you know, you know, legal substances or narcotics, you can't take deductions. Well, cannabis is still a Schedule One drug. And part of the talk is descheduling, decriminalizing you know, the drug. And that would open up basically profitability, 
job growth, tax revenue, and really get this thing to where it needs to go. So we've seen these stocks move. We've seen Cresco Labs. We've seen Green Thumb. All of them have been moving up. I can name any MSOs. Just look at MSOS and you can see it. But more importantly here, I think this the space now has more momentum than it's ever had. I think these the, the M&A going on has been big. We've seen that over the last three to four months. I think that's going to continue. And I think you're now seeing the evolution into the traditional CPG, consumer packaged goods space, where brands are going to matter, which hadn't mattered before. And I, I think we're seeing a massive consumer adoption. And, and, it, and it's exciting to watch. How many, how many industries have we seen between the three of us grow like this in the last what 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 has there been that kind of has this impact so pretty exciting and i think i think it's still very very positive and there's much more to come one other thing i wanted to mention that's is key so there's only a few companies that trade on the us exchanges and part of these bills they want to pass is not only banking it's allowing the exchanges to actually uplist the us companies that are involved in cannabis right now you can trade a canadian stock on the us exchanges or you can trade a us stock on the junior canadian exchanges and that's just ridiculous so You've seen GW Pharma and a couple of these other companies that are legally trading in the U.S. that have an expression of cannabis in it, trade at premiums. And that's part of the reason. So there is a scarcity value still here at play as well. Before we go off the tape with the two dudes with weird names, I just think we should mention also on the tape this week was obviously we had a jobs number, a lot of talk about stimulus, Dan, Nathan, unemployment down to 6.3%. What does it all really mean in terms of what we do for a living and just in terms of your views going forward? Pretty interesting. Obviously, that swing in December to the first negative jobs print since April was kind of one of those things. I think a lot of economists and strategists antennas up, especially as we kind of head into this discussion about stimulus. It seems that the Biden administration, they took one stab at kind of trying to do a bipartisan thing, but it seems that the Republicans are well below where the Democrats want to settle. They're moving towards budget reconciliation where they wouldn't need any Democrats to do that. So if we get a number near 1.9, which is what I think a lot of market participants were hoping for, you know, and that's 1.9 trillion. Okay, throw that onto the 4 trillion that we've already done as far as fiscal and monetary over the last year. And that's exactly, I think, what market participants want. We have the S&P 500, we have the NASDAQ, we have the Russell 2000 making all-time highs this Friday um, as we speak. I just wonder if we get a bit of a sell the news sort of situation. I think some of the data on the vaccinations is starting to get a bit better relative to cases. And we'd like to see, you know, kind of those numbers and the deaths kind of come down pretty quickly. I just don't think that this is a great foundation for another leg higher at all time highs, especially if we get just the kind of the Democrats pushing through this big plan. Yeah. And I'm watching rates here as well. Listen, 10 year yield still historically very low. It's not concerning. The direction is concerning, but it shouldn't be surprising. And I think if, if rates are, I think, 117 on the 10 year right now, something in that magnitude, go back and look at the chart from last year. I don't want to steal Dan's chart thunder. But if you look and see where we kind of dropped from the 150 level kind of settled right here at 120 for a brief time before plunging, before the stimulus started to come into play. We're still a ways away from that, but I would keep an eye on it. And what we talk about with market structure as it relates to equities, let's not kid ourselves. There's market structure issues as it relates to trading rates as well. And we've seen those massive swings uh, up and down. And it would be the one thing. I, want, I don't want to hear from anybody. I'm telling you, if, if rates were to go sustainably higher, and I know that my former partners that are coming on are going to have thoughts on that, that is something that will make these markets take a breather here. No question. I'm, I'm going to break their onions, as they say. But I just have to do it. But just to close this out, I think the existential risk to this market is rates moving higher in a precipitous fashion. And remember, it was August when 10-year yields were around 53 basis points. 
as we speak now to Danny's point, we're about 1.17%. And I think we're headed higher. And I don't think the market realizes that rising rates, it ain't happening because the economy's getting better. There are other forces at work here. And I think that, take out your little Webster's Dictionary, I think that's going to be deleterious. Great word for you folks taking the SATs this weekend to the broader market. But we'll see. When we come back, we're going to go off the tape with Danny's former, former partners, Vincent Daniel, crazy name, and Porter Collins. We'll be right back. We are back and we are going off the tape. And let me tell you something, you know, sometimes you become a participant and also a viewer. Well, that's how I'm about to be a participant and a viewer because the next two cats are Danny Moses's partner from the big short. We got Porter Collins is a two-time Olympic rower, graduated from Brown, which by the way, man, that is a bougie school. And you currently partner with Vincent at Seawolf. Vinny, you're from Queens, Binghamton grad, sell-side analyst at Oppenheimer in the 90s. I think you're both Met fans. I mean, what's the deal? Do you just like to, you know, it's funny. Rowing is a sport of just torture. It's one of those things where you suffer. That's the same thing with being a Jet and a Met fan, Porter. Isn't that right? I love it. Uh, that's why we're such good short sellers. And Guy, if you add to the fact that we're both also value investors, then you're really screwed, right? Yeah, so you got Mets, Jets, Knicks, value. I mean, we just like paint. Vinny, why is it that everything the Mets touch turns to shit? You got made off with the Wilpons the first time around. Steve Cohen just sniffs the Mets and then Melvin Capital blows up. Vinny, come on, enough. It hasn't escaped my mind that all the woes that Stevie Cohen has recently been dealing with is purely a function of him buying the Mets. <laughs> 100%. And I know you Jet and Mets fans, you're all geeked up. We got the second pick in the draft and Deshaun Watson's coming. And can I tell you something? He ain't coming, just so we know. Anyway, Danny, take it away. Yeah, so guys, great to be back together again. We kind of left Seawolf, or I left Seawolf kind of in early 2017. I know you guys went through a couple iterations on some platforms and kind of finally figured out what I've been telling you guys a couple years ago, that you'll have more fun on your own you know, across all sectors, not just in financial services, since in hindsight, that was very boring what we were doing. It was fun, obviously, for a period of time, but- you, we've been talking again about what's been going on out there, having been short sellers together in the trenches. So wanted to get your thoughts. And obviously, we kind of joked around, but we certainly would have been caught up in some of these, I'm sure, on the short side. But just wanted to get your guys' thoughts on what's going on with short selling in general out there. I don't think it's anything new. I mean, we've seen these squeezes before and lots of different things happen. I, I first think it was one of the best fundamental trades I've seen it in a long time. Burry was buying the stock at three dollars. Wrote a letter to the board saying, "So we're talking about stock. sorry. So we're talking about Michael Burry, who Christian Bale played in the Big Short. Funny enough, and then the Reddit crowd did the same thing, right? They had they they made a fundamental call about buy the stock because the PlayStation was coming out. Stock was super cheap. Plus the shortages. I mean, I don't know who, I don't know anyone who short stocks with one hundred and fifty percent of the float is short. It's just insane." You can't win that way on the short side. You just can't win. And so it was probably the worst risk management trade of all time. It's the equivalent of Howie Hubler shorting the, the AAA CDS. From Morgan Stanley. But you couldn't, that being said, though, to go to three, four, five hundred $500, that's something else, right? I hear your point about moving from 3 to $5 up to 15 or 20 and resetting. But we're talking about something more. Vinny, go ahead. Oh, I think from from that perspective, Danny, I think there were a significant amount of institutions that are more quants, where I think they were actually going on these various chat rooms 
recognizing that these chats had influence and were probably the real money behind that took GME from maybe a, a, a normal short squeeze to something parabolic. But the other thing I would say about shorts right now and squeezes, I mean, Guy, I think you'll enjoy this one. Uh, we could have a contest of who hates the Fed the most. It all comes back to ZERP policy, printing money, easy money. And sooner or later, the masses are going to figure out and have figured out that the Fed is not allowing markets to fail. So once you do that, you are going to get retail participation, which makes it extremely difficult to short anything. When, when, when they're printing and pumping money into the system, it's quite difficult to be a fundamental short analyst. You're preaching to the choir with me, 100%. I think the root of all this is absolutely 12 years of not only our Fed, but central bank policy around the world that's led to this, this notion that you can't lose. And that, to me, is problematic. So my question to you, and, and Porter can jump on this on the back end, I think short sellers are, play a vital role in the market. And if you were to extract them, which we seem to be doing right now, by the way, if you listen to Citron and some of these other people, they're saying they're throwing their hands up and saying, we can't do it anymore. I think that's going to be really devastating to the market, not tomorrow, but in the months and maybe in the years to come. I mean, let's not forget, you know, the, the three of us lived through the short ban and it makes what's going on look like a picnic, right? These stocks, the whole, not, not just a couple stocks, the whole market and the whole sector went parabolic during this time frame. And so, you know, we were there at the steps uh, when Danny had his heart attack and-, and Not a going, heart attack. My mother could be listening. It was not a heart attack. It was a panic, panic attack. attack. Yeah. It was a panic attack. But Thank anyway, you for rescuing me, Olympian. Yeah, we We thought it was over for hedge funds that, that short selling would never come back. And it did. But the biggest problem is that people don't realize short sellers are pent up by demand. Right. So they they at some point will take off their shorts unless the company goes bankrupt. So not only are the grosses, well, grosses may be staying flat, but net positioning of hedge funds has gone up a lot in terms of long. And so who's left to buy these stocks? Who's the last person to you know buy the stock that's going to sit on it? Now, we've seen it already. You see it happen in a GameStop. You see it happen in an AMC. You can someone paid that number at the top for, for those two stocks come down if there aren't short sellers left. Who's left to buy the stock? So that's another take. I know, Vinny, you have thoughts on that. I, I do. I see what Cahod said, and I understand his perspective, but I also not necessarily sure I completely believe it. And what I mean by that is, right now, if you're vocal on a short, that is fodder for an algo to pick up and just start squeezing you. So I think most of the great shorts like Cahod's and all them are probably going to go behind the scenes and really not be as vocal or public with what they're doing. And I can't blame them because, I mean, we saw the other day, uh, poor Steve Eisman, who another member of the Big Short, was, was on TV. He mentioned what his biggest short was at the time. And then three days afterwards, the stock was up around 20%. So if you have this great short idea, keep your mouth shut and just let it play out from a fundamental perspective rather than uh, attract the flows that would come and squeeze you. I want to talk about this because this is important. And Vinny, maybe you can comment on this first and then Porter. So when, when Steve was running our fund and very, you know, similar to what's going on now, I think short sellers in general. So we were kind of going after the for-profit 
education companies. They were using taxpayer money to subsidize tuition and weren't providing real education and so forth. But for us, it was twofold. One, we wanted people, the consumer, to realize what they were doing and what they were paying for. And two, we wanted the taxpayer to realize. So Steve went down to testify, right, um, in, front of, in front of the committee, which made me, as a trader, you know, I was cringing the whole time because I didn't want to trade anything or whatever, but with great intentions to expose these companies and actually helped what was undone later, but helped kind of structure regulations around it. And it wasn't so much, yes, we made money on those for, for profits, but that wasn't really what it was about. And as a matter of fact, maybe you guys can tell me, when Steve was down there, he ended up writing a check for one of the witnesses testifying for whatever they paid in tuition to one of those colleges. So again, it's it's great and every, not everyone has great intentions, but in that case, we felt, yes, not so much talking the book, but felt that we owed society something that we think we have uncovered and that need to be aware. But Porter, maybe comment on that. And you know, Cahodes talks about this in, in his letters and interviews about how everyone he's basically gone after are a bunch of crooks. And so when the SEC doesn't do his job, they put basically no one away last four years. You know, it's left for the market to do it itself. And so if you're going to remove short sellers, who's left to police anybody? And so you know, that's part of the problem. And you know, we've talked about this for years in that. You know, in a capitalist society, you have to have massive penalties if you break the laws. Right now, you know, you, you break the laws and, and you get slapped on the wrist. Let I me mean, talk about silver's been in the news recently, but JP Morgan paid a billion dollars in fines for breaking the silver market. It pales in comparison to the profits they make along the way. I mean, the, the big banks and all these guys have paid fines on subprime, silver, HFT. They, they you know, they keep. Well, it, shareholders pay up. the fine. Shareholders pay the fine every yeah. time. It's the Correct. shareholders that pay the it's fine. It, it's it's an, it's incredible that at the end of the day, the shareholders are left holding the bag, and there has been little to zero recourse to the managers who really help perpetrate the frauds or or whatever was going on. And so it sounds very self serving. And as as we're saying this, I'm like, God, wow, we're not th- we're not this good at two shoes. But I mean, you bring me back to the for profit educators. Danny, and, and it was Steve's real intentions. He couldn't stand the fact that these people were being robbed of money for an extremely poor education. And I, it, it also brings me back that when we used to go down to D.C., and this was pre-Big Short, and we would tell people, various power players in D.C., you really need to stop this 228 loans or the layering of risk and the like. They, they just didn't listen to us. They didn't, they didn't really care because... Generally speaking, we weren't going down to D.C. with a suitcase full of money to lobby them for a certain cause. We were actually just trying to do the right thing, and they didn't listen. So let me ask you guys, you know, it's interesting what you just mentioned about the silver market and the fines that J.P. Morgan paid, you know, and obviously you just made very clear what your views are about short sellers in the market, and obviously there is a service that they provide when they're looking to uncover fraud, but it also seems that you seem sympathetic to this Reddit crowd targeting, let's say, this silver trade because they're trying to inflict some pain, and I'm just curious because that's a narrative that I'm not so sure there's any easy answers to, right? Like both sides of this trade, there seems to be plenty of room to be sympathetic to those causes if they are causes. I'll throw out another topic here on the same sort of thing. The people that own Bitcoin are sort of looking at this thing and said, well, no one's rigging our market. And, you know, there's no, there's no government regulator, there's no margin requirements, and there's no all this stuff. And we have a better, simpler answer. And 
you know, I, I don't even know which way I come down in that, but I do have a lot of sympathy for the Reddit crowd because at first they, they made a great fundamental call, right? And then it was gasoline in the fire was just the, the short interest, right? I think what Chamath, Elon, and then Portnoy and the Winklevi, they all come came on and pumped it, you know, later. I think that was the one that really crushed the retail crowd. I, I think that the Reddit crowd from the beginning had a great call, but just these all these stock promoters came on, on top and just they stuck a dagger in the hearts of the of the Reddit crowd. And I think that's what killed this trade. So I think we should have done an over under how long this would have gone until Musk was mentioned in a negative light. <laughs> Way to get that in there, Vinny. I try. I, I try. Porter, didn't you beat the Winklevi in a couple rowing uh, <laughs> things? Yeah. Yeah, but you did, right? I just want to make sure that I got They that were a little bit younger than me, but I, yeah. I'll stop. Porter's a badass. Porter, I know you're not going to understand this uh, analogy I'm going to make. Vinny will, and you're going to so bear me out for a second. But in The Godfather, and I mentioned this last week, there's a scene when Brando's in the car with uh, Robert Duvall, and he turns to him and says, Tatalia's a pimp. He could never have outfought Santino. But what I didn't know until right now, it's been Barzini all the time. Now, Porter, while Vincent answers this question, I'll let you Google it. But who's the Barzini in this whole thing? Because I'm telling you right now, somebody else has been pulling the strings. And the Tatalias are all the Reddit crowd, in my opinion, Vinny. I'll shift it. Yes, first off, great pull on that one. And, and I would say that's one of my favorite scenes in The Godfather. But uh, you can name them all and I, and I would be there. I always go to the structure of the alternative investors in the capital markets right now. So when you think about it, and this gets really to Danny's point, Danny will jump all over this. Right now, the way the market is structured from the retail side, we put in an order from at Fidelity or Robinhood or wherever, you're the product because they're allowing you to pay nothing. So you're the product. So then who's making money of it? It's the back end. It's the virtues of the world. It's the Citadel securities of the world. And, and this thing that we all are getting to learn more intimately, which is payment per order flow. And to me, you talk about the Bazzinis, of, that's where the Bazzinis are. And I'm not necessarily surprised that when these big hedge funds were starting to lose lots of money and they're very levered, and we had the potential chance to have a very big unwinding of very large hedge funds or a degrossing, as they call it, not shockingly to me that it stopped immediately because you can't have that. So to me, when you ask wh where's, where's the top of the pie, it's really in these large levered hedge funds and who's running these payment for order brokerage firms. Now, if I was smart, if I was smart enough, Porter, I could give you a great Gatsby reference because that's probably, F. Scott Fitzgerald's <laughs> probably more your speed. But do you have any thoughts on this? Well, I, I do have. You know, Vinny and I've been working together for 19 years now, so I, I do. I I'm pretty well versed in every Italian movie known to mankind. So Vinny was referencing one the other day. Oh, I got I got one for later on too. So don't worry, no worries. Well, there's a Fredo here, right? In terms of. Um... Who, who is the one basically selling everybody out, right? And that is the disclosures coming last year from Robinhood, 
what they didn't disclose how much they make for payment for order flow. Like, who is the person here that is really well? Well, first the of all, Danny, spoiler alert on on the tape. We, we you know we just don't kind of give out the the, the kind of ending of Godfather two here. Um, I, I just want to make one point though. What what Vincent just was just said. You know, it's funny that there's plenty of financial services companies though that actually like. Well, here you mentioned Fidelity. You know, I just you know I have a relationship with Fidelity. I do a weekly thing called In the Money with them. They're the only major brokerage firm that does not sell their order flow. Okay. So, you know, when, when you think about it, and, and I've gone back to this whole, whole idea over the last few weeks is that the Robin Hood, what was the innovation that Robin Hood created, right? What were they disrupting? They were disrupting the pricing model, but then what they were doing is very simply, and I know that you guys, you know, have all figured this out also is that their customer was the product, right? To your point, they were charging them for margin. They were selling their order flow. They were selling the data uh, of their API, that sort of thing. And so, at the end of the day, there are financial services companies that actually were not profiting off their client just by the transactions that they were doing, but they were actually layering on other services. Um, so to me, I, I just think that there there are some distinctions here. And I think at the end of the day, the Robinhood organization is the one that comes out a big loser. I think Elon comes out a big loser. I think there's plenty of losers and there's some firms that are going to win this thing. And, and high frequency trading was one of them. People making money on the volatility is one of them and bid ask, that sort of thing. I mean, one of the things that I keep harping on is that they default you to a margin account. So they're putting completely unsophisticated retail investors into margin accounts because it's more profitable for them. And so we've been doing this a long time. We, we rarely use options and stuff like that because the we always say the house always wins. It's just really hard unless you have a, you know, a, a very specific nugget of information to beat the options market. And these guys are playing options markets like crazy. And I, I just think that's a, a huge disservice that they're doing to the, the retail. I'll take the other side of this trade, which is the big hedge funds. The ones that have gotten hurt, I think it's pretty important to understand the structure of how they actually operate. So they, they operate under a risk framework called ball targeting. So they essentially target a certain ball and then Based upon the historic statistics of that, those volatility measures that they use, they get to lever their funds three to one, four to one, five to one, six to one, depending on the risk metrics. As you get bigger, right? And so keep in mind on that for every long that I have, generally speaking, I have to have a short. So these big funds have to go short because they're satisfying a low net mandate and they're levered five or six or seven to one. To me, the way I have always thought about it is, this should be a diseconomies of scale business because as you get bigger, if you're a $5 billion fund, $7 billion fund, $12 billion fund, you can't put that much capital to work in the shorts, particularly in light of what we spoke about in terms of what the Fed is doing. So I think for the guys such as Melvin and some of the other funds that mentioned, they had no choice but to have these shorts on because they, my guess, they were long, great companies like Amazon and Microsoft and the like. And then you're shorting the dirt for had an eight standard deviation event. And because that happened and the longs weren't going up commensurate, there were massive margin calls. So the way I think about it, if what I would do, and I apologize for being long, if I were the regulators, the bank regulators in particular, I would ask for their list of the, their top largest counterparties. And I would do it on a gross basis, not a net basis. And then once you get that list, you would realize that almost every single bank has the same largest credit counterparties. And we all know who they are, the millenniums of the world, the citadels of the world and the like. And then from there, I would say, okay, we have systemic risk. 
Because if these things go down, every single bank has the same largest credit exposures. And the easiest way to remedy this problem, and, and not to get too much in the weeds, is you basically, you charge higher risk weights on those assets of those credit counterparties. And voila, you've just lowered the leverage of the entire system. I wouldn't do it immediately. I would do it over three or four years. And then I think you would solve a major problem that we currently have in the markets right now. Vinny, you've always had the ability to, to carry two other jobs, one which you'll never do, which is going down to Washington and being involved in this. And I'm sure when I ask you guys the question, do you think anything good is going to come of any of these hearings? I can speak for you. The answer will be no. And we'll go on as business as usual. But I want to make a case for you right now to be the Mets GM. Because oh. one, you could pass Steve Cohen's psychological testing, which the other GM never would have passed probably in the first place. But here's your opportunity, Vin. I also wouldn't have other issues, by the way. That's true. That you really should really, really should take a look at that. But while we have you guys, kind of what you guys are doing right now, what kind of your top picks, if you want to give them out, maybe on the long and short side, you guys have finally used your brains for other things other than small cap financials. Maybe you guys could touch on a few things here. I think the hardest word for Danny and Moses to say is, I'm bullish. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> bullish on put options sometimes. But yeah, yes. exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which, by the way, he did at Idea Dinners. He goes, Danny, give me a long. Okay, I'll give you a long. And he would name a name of a put option. So he goes, I'm long a put. Hilarious. Right. Vinny would never let me talk about anything in our book ever because he said, you, to Vinny's point, you don't want to expose yourself to these random truth because he's right in a microcosm that was exactly what would happen and you just you go to these dinners to hear you know what everybody else is doing and give you a little flavor of the market but yeah porter what do you guys like here given what we just said about short selling and how hard it is and the the fed and all this stuff we we sort of you know we rarely short except for a couple you know crazy automakers and stuff like that but um you can say it no. Uh, uh, uh. Right, go <laughs> so ahead. Sorry. instead of that, we, we've kind of have a harebrained strategy that we've been long gold as our short in the thought process that if the world goes to shit, we're going to be long gold and gold will do pretty well. And, and in a bullish tape, which we have right now, uh, where you have risk on inflation and oil is going up and you know gold kind of sits there sort of kind of like a lump of coal rather than a lump of gold. And so that's been that's been a on the short side been fantastic for for us and much better than shorting indices and shorting stocks and stuff like that so our view is basically that you're going to get a lot more inflation the economy is going to open up you know instead of printing you know 50,000 jobs you're going to start printing 500,000 jobs in the next uh next couple of months and the world's going to look a lot different six months from now and and it's it's hard to to uh, fight that. And you're going to see, um, you know, just a lot more economic activity. And we're, we're super, our biggest trade is long oil, long oil companies. And it's, um, you know, it, it's that risk on trade that, that we like. We, we, in our old days, we would, would, would have been long financials, but, you know, we just, we're, we're a little bit afraid of the regulation coming from the the new regime and stuff like that. Before we get out of here, fellas, I, I just got to, you know, Danny asked you to put on your GM hat. So Vinny, real quick, I would, listen, if I'm the Met GM, I do a couple things. I get rid of that bullshit Apple that pops up when guys go long because I think that's Bush League. You might as well put, it's, hit disagree. the ball, win a dinner thing. I mean, this is right out of Bull Durham. It's ridiculous. 
but I'm also trading my first baseman because he plays that for, he plays that position like he's picking up freaking hand grenades, and you might be able to get something for him. Thoughts, Vinny? You can't trade Pete Alonso yet. First off, the clubhouse culture right now is really good with the Mets, and and the last thing I would do, guy, is trade Pete Alonso before we determine whether we're going to have a DH or not. Because if we do have a DH, you can platoon Dominic Smith and Pete Alonso. So that would be a horrible trade. Second, about your Yankees, which I've kept quiet on this one. The <laughs> Yankees are equivalent to me of the Fed. Everything uh-huh. the Fed does is kind of like the Yankees. When uh-huh. the Yankees lose, they print money, right? Dude, the last time you guys won, okay. The last time you guys won, you did QE4. You got Teixeira. <laughs> you got, I go, you're the same as the Fed. The Sabathia, thing you hate AJ is, Burnett. Oh, I know horrible. the whole thing. It was yeah. horrible. That, that so. is so, that's such typical Met fandom there that you buy your pennants. Wah, wah, wah. <laughs> the Yankees have made some of the best strategic moves over the years that any ball club in sports. And Brian Cashman is a genius, full stop. Hey guys, I want to get back to one more thing in the markets, and uh, we've talked about this collectively all the time, and we we talked about it earlier on the show, and that's interest rates. And we talk about what the Fed's been pumping, but every time the Fed's tried to pull back, we've seen what's going to happen in the market. I know, Vinny, and Porter, you wake up, you watch that 10-year yield, and you're like, hmm, it's good for the banks for a bit, you get that trade, but can you guys talk about what we all know, what happens in a sustained rising rate environment to what you think is going to happen in the market and how would you play that? Vinny, I'll start with you and then uh, go to Porter. So to me, the kryptonite of the current economic system are rising rates. It can't happen because we financialized the entire world. And so if you think about everything we do is purchased on credit, almost everything. So if you, and, and to me, if, I, if you had to take one metric in markets that you wanted to take with you to a desert island and that's it. It's the 10 year treasury. So I watch that like a hawk and I'm kind of like Ben Affleck and Goodwill hunting. You know, when he had that speech with, with Matt Damon and says, you know what the best part of my day is? The best part of my day is when I wake up and knock on your door and hope that you're not there. Well, the best part of my day is when I wake up and look at my summary thing. And I hope that the 10-year treasury rises. Now, I know it'll cause him wreak havoc on the system, but perhaps maybe we could get back to a more normal economic system that has more equality. I mean, your, your podcast with Stephanie Rule was fantastic, and she was ranting about this. And I agree with her. And I think the Fed is the one that creates the inequality. And if, you, if the 10-year rises, now, as I say that, and I apologize, it can't rise because the minute it does, Markets collapse, and we've seen that. We see it in eighteen. We actually just saw it a few weeks ago when the when the ten year got into one point two five percent. It's it's the kryptonite. I mean, the thing that drives me crazy is the MMT crowd because they think they can have it all for free, and they self admit that their limitation is inflation. But what happens when we get inflation? We're all dead. Like if if you get too much inflation, the Fed has to hike rates aggressively. This market is going down 50%. And I just think you're playing with a lot of fire with, with this inflation. And 
we're in a lot of trouble. And so I, I think the, the the price is going to be paid. It's not going to be this year, probably. Maybe it's the back half, but there's going to be a price to pay it if you get a lot higher inflation. So Porter, Guy asked you um, about your gold trade, uh, your view on gold. It obviously is tied into this whole thing. And he said if he was a um, an intern over there at Seawolf, he'd be asking you about the structure of the GLD. No, that's not what your intern would be asking you. They'd be asking you, hey, boss, what about Bitcoin? Why are we in this GLD? And it's funny when you think about what's happened over the last six months or so, this the whole discussion about inflation has really kind of seeped into the markets, right? And we've seen, you know, the dollar move and you guys are on oil and, and, and it all makes sense to me. The one thing that doesn't make sense to me is that gold is going lower and Bitcoin has doubled in the last, you know, few months. What is your guys take on Bitcoin? And are you guys down with the millennial crowd's view on this? The funny thing, we've been mucking around Bitcoin for a long time. This is pre-Mount Gox. And, you know, we, we all are, uh, I know Danny and I, try to get a, a Mt. Gox account. And we got shut out for KYC purposes. Thank God we did a friend of ours, lost all his money in the Mt. Gox situation. So fast forward a couple of years and I went down to see my, my friends, the Winklevi. And for me, I wanted to make sure that my money wasn't going to get stolen. And so, you know, that, that, that was the biggest concern for me and, and hacking and all that stuff. And so I would say two or three years ago, I bought Bitcoin. More recently, I've been more bullish on Ethereum because I think if you look at the use cases rather than just a holding an instrument that hopefully goes up, you think about blockchain and a lot of the applications for, for this stuff is basically a lot of it, I think, is going to be all on the Ethereum rails. Visa did a partnership with them. Microsoft has a partnership with them in terms of gaming royalties. There's a lot of different stuff, a lot of really interesting stuff going on 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 the blockchain, and I, I personally think Ethereum at this point is is the is the better play than than uh, Bitcoin. Funny, as a Queens boy, I could tell you I've seen a few of the old school street Ponzi schemes, and I could tell you that, in my view, Bitcoin is probably the most well orchestrated Ponzi scheme we'll ever see in our lives, and it's so good. And, and if you think about a Ponzi scheme, if you're running a Ponzi scheme, you can never stop selling and you have to will it to fruition. And it's very possible. It's, it's possible. There's a non-zero probability that Bitcoin is willed to be legitimate. To me, that's what's going on right now. I am a big believer in the digitization of the plumbing of everything associated with financial services and contracts and the like. But I still do not believe that Bitcoin will be the currency of choice, I just don't think sovereign governments are going to allow it. I mean, why would you give up the most powerful weapon you have as a sovereign is the power and control of money? How are you going to cede that to six to 10 people? And and, and it's such a libertarian fashion. That's the part of Bitcoin that I have such a hard time with. If I I was the Fed, I would not allow Bitcoin to be legal tender in the United States. I I think it's absurd that if you're the U.S. government, that, that's your biggest asset, right? You, you are the reserve currency of the world. Why would you let any of this stuff come into the system? I think it, it's a real issue for them. So it sounds like you guys have sold your Bitcoin. It's always good to end a discussion with you guys because it gives me the warm and fuzzies by the word Ponzi scheme because it just <laughs> makes me so excited inside. <laughs> and listen, Porter... Do me a favor. Go go back to you. Go to Blockbuster this weekend and rent The Godfather. Maybe you effing learn something, dude. I mean, I know with Brown, you're not allowed to watch those. School ties is more his uh, genre. I had a Danny. I had a great Danny. I had a great 
a great Danny Big Short story if you guys wanted to hear. Well, we we got we, we to actually. Well, no, 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 no. Hey, listen. Danny Big Short story. Listen, I, I I hadn't seen the movie since it came out. I'm rewatching it recently with my wife. I go to the deleted scenes. I see a scene about one of Danny's nuts, and I see a scene about oh, him boy. on the floor <laughs> peeing himself. So please, please, if there's other deleted scenes, I'd love to, I'd love to hear it. Well, it was the scene that Danny never got into, and he was supposed to the real life Danny Moses. So the first time we met Adam McKay was at Scalatinello. Do you guys remember that the Italian restaurant on the Upper East? When people and, used to go eat, yeah, yeah. yeah. And and after he sized us up, Adam, and he said, and was sizing up our personalities. He concluded that Danny was the optimist of the group, right? <laughs> and he was right from a personality perspective. And I'm going to love Doversoul. I love Doversoul. Yeah. And he said because Danny was the one that's the most outgoing personality. I mean, look, he's the one doing the podcast, and he was the one that believed that we can do everything and anything possible. But Danny, God love him, mistaken the word optimism for bullish. <laughs> and so he viewed that optimism was that he was the most bullish of the lot. And that bothered Danny a lot. And I mean a lot. So, and he was ready to set the record straight. So we went down to New Orleans where they, where they filmed a lot of the scenes. That's where Brad Pitt's production company was. And basically, they were, they were filming a scene and Danny was going to cut in and say, I'm the real life Danny Moses and tell people what exactly is going on. Here was the gorgeous thing. I'm sitting in the back of a soundproof room with headsets like this. And Danny did about 10 or 15 takes. And every single take, bar none, said, I'm not an optimist. Some way, some shape or form, he had to get it in there. <laughs> and Guy, going back to the Italian movies, it was like a scene, the scene from Rocky II, when Rocky Balboa is trying to sell beast shave and they just kept him making doing retakes. Now in I'm the morning, sitting, I put it on. It smells nice. Yeah. And I, I'm sitting in the back room laughing. I can't stop laughing. So Brad Pitt's number two came up to me and she, she said, what, what's wrong with you? Why are you laughing so much? And I said, you don't understand. You're going to do another thousand takes. He's never going to stop saying I'm an optimist. And she turned to me and she goes, who the hell doesn't want to be known as an optimist, right? <laughs> That's Danny yeah. Moses. That's well, tremendous. Hold on, guy. Guy, before you take us out, there's one other quick thing. And Dan mentioned the testicle thing in the movie, whatever <laughs> that came because I had a doctor's appointment. Hold on. So I find out that this is in the movie. I find out it's going to go in the movie. So I'm talking to some costume set designer who's doing all the clothing for everybody. I go, oh, and I knew that it was Porter was behind this. With Wait, you had a prophetic nut? No, we oh. won't talk about that. Well, okay. that's on a health uh, okay, pod. Sorry. We're not doing that here. But Porter, I found out he was behind it. So I go, oh, by the way, in the costume department, you should know this about Porter. They go, well, what is it? Because we want to get exactly how he is. I go, he loves wearing his pants short up on his leg. So like take it like a flood, you know, take it up like three or four inches. So we get on set in New Orleans and the, and the guy that's playing Porter, I swear to God, is wearing these short pants. <laughs> and I said, this is the greatest thing. I go, oh, and he hates wearing socks because Porter's big thing is to not wear pants without socks because he hates that he thinks that's you know not cool that's not school ties enough so anyway i got him back i, I got him back a little bit but anyway Look, we got to go ahead we get now we got to get these guys back porter collins thank you vincent daniel thank you this has been a blast it's been a lot of fun for me and by the way i didn't apply to brown but if i did i wasn't getting in my man and binghamton the most cloudy city in the united states that's the reason why you're so pessimistic all the time but thank you both thank you danny moses thank you dan nathan Please subscribe to On The Tape 
on the podcast stores. Follow us on Twitter, on the Tape Pod. Guys, this has been fun. We'll see you all next week. Thank you. Thank you.